wondering what you want to be when you grow up? Have you wondered how to get into a certain line of work and never known where to start? My name is John Manigon. I'm a career fly-in, fly-out worker, working as an electrical instrumentation technician in all aspects of heavy industry, including mining and oil and gas, in Australia and abroad. Given my limited exposure to other industries, I've always wondered what exactly do people do when they go to work. Tune in as we discuss from the mundane to the mind-blowing, and everywhere in between, where we garner insight from real industry professionals living the job. What better place to go for first-hand career advice? So if you're a school leaver or a concerned parent of a school leaver looking for some direction, or perhaps you're having a midlife crisis and looking for a career change, you've come to the right place. Welcome, classmates, to the working class. G'day, classmates. Today I'm talking to Brett Robbo Robinson. As well as once training as an elite athlete himself, Robbo is a performance coach who's worked with the top one percenters, from elite athletes to Paralympic athletes to Red Bull athletes to NRL and AFL football teams to CEOs of companies. Robbo's worked with them all, optimizing human potential in all industries. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Uh, big working class welcome to Brett Robbo Robinson. How are you, my friend? I'm bloody brilliant, mate, and I'm super grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. That's awesome, man. And you're in sunny Sweden? I'm in uh, Sweden. Let's say that the sun <laughs> comes and goes. We're, we're about to hit the end of summer and the transition. It's been a beautiful summer. But yeah, over here based in Sweden, about halfway up the country. And right now, this time of the year, we're surrounded by an abundance of wild blueberries and raspberries and just hundreds of different berries. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a magical time of the year here. It sounds pretty awesome, man. Um, I, I feel like I need to preface this, um, this podcast, um, with how we came to have this conversation. Um, around the time of my last quarantine period, I was, I guess I was kind of struggling a bit and I was talking with a friend of mine who, um, obviously cares a lot about me. I'll shout out to Tobes. And he um, mentioned that maybe I should make contact with yourself. And um, I got onto your website and I saw that you're um, you're a fellow podcaster and kind of made the connection that way. Um, do you care to tell us what, you know, how you represent yourself there, Robbo? How I represent myself? That's a... It's, I've never been asked that, and I like that rather than people <laughs> saying, "What do you do?" So, yeah. First of all, shout out to Tobes. He's he's a really, really good, genuine man, and um, he did my eight week breakthrough program and made some massive progress. That was really good. Uh, what the way I represent myself is, I'm an optimistic lover of life, and I'm addicted to gratitude. I'm a proud father of two, and I'm madly in love with my gorgeous wife, and what I do is um, I live life in full alignment with my values and my personal philosophy and I have a blueprint of how I choose to show up and that's how I know I live consistently and um, will far exceed my goals and live my visions. So um, what does that entail for me from a work sense and why would Toby wanted to connect with you? Well, you know, we can talk about how I got to this point but what I currently do is uh, yes, I have a podcast. 
Um, that's what I, I have a podcast, but what I do for work is I'm a performance coach. So I optimize human potential through mindset, breath work, emotional intelligence, and movement. And I've got a background in high-performance sport, working with elite Olympic and Paralympic athletes and um, footballers and different extreme sports and Red Bull athletes. But now I work predominantly with men. I also have a lot of women clients, but predominantly with men and my men's programs in enhancing and optimizing all elements of their life through the mindset and the emotional intelligence and the online programs, um, improving, increasing, enhancing their health, wealth, and relationships. So what I do in terms of the podcasting is interview uh, legendary humans who have great stories to share, but also an abundance of value for the listeners so they can not just be inspired to make change, but also leave the podcast with tools and strategies of how they can make permanent positive change in their life. Mm. So, so who would you say um, should have a performance coach? Who, who needs a coach? Yeah, let me first preface what a performance coach is. So, you know, I was a high-performance coach in high-performance sport. And now as a performance coach, what that means is we're looking at people's life as their performance. So not athletes. Of course, I work with athletes, but I'm talking with every human. So I'm, let's say we're talking with you, John, or any of the listeners. But uh, people who need a coach are people who want to make improvement in their life. Mm. No athlete gets to the top on their own without coach and support staff. No successful person in business or in their career who is looking for the one percenters won't explore or work with and engage with and invest in a coach, a performance coach or a coach in some kind. Um, and I've got multiple coaches in different areas that I'm always working with and mentors and all of those guys have coaches and mentors. So people who should have a coach are people who want to make positive change or empowering change in their life, in their health, wealth, or relationships. And, uh, or, you know, in their, you know, well, health covers the physical aspects as well, but coaching is for everyone. Mm. And some people might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. It's like, cool. Do you want to just continue doing pretty good and plateau or do you want to go to the next level? And that doesn't mean you have to perfect everything, but I say that we look at your life like a performance because when you do that, you'll start to respect the one percenters, mm. meaning all areas of your health, meaning um, your money mindsets and how you can you know, grow money without having to work harder or work more. Looking at your relationships, um, whether it's colleagues, whether it's family, whether it's loved ones and the relationship with yourself. If you want to make improvements in your life and get more joy, more happiness, have more fucking fun, more connection to you and the world and everything, even amongst all the chaos that's going on, if mm. you want to have a better life, coaching can get you there. So in saying that, do you, do you just not see it being acceptable that people are happy with where they're at? Or is there always, should, there should always be that drive to reach the one percenters? Yeah, brilliant question. And um, I absolutely accept when people say they're happy with where they're, where they're at. But if I was to sit down and talk with them, I would find, and not by probing, not mm -hmm. by judging, I suspend judgment with everything that I do. But everyone can always make 
change. And there will be, there's no one that I know, even the monks on the mountaintop that say they're enlightened. There is always room for change. And often the people that say, I'm good where I'm at, I'm super happy, like everything's awesome. What we don't realize is, is that there's things out there that we're not aware of. There's change that we're not even aware of. There's elements of us and our potential and happiness and joy that we're not even aware of until we go there. Because until you understand yourself at a deeper level and understand how humans operate and what's available to you consciously, subconsciously, um, and in the real world or in the external world, you don't actually know what you're missing out on. Yeah. So when people say that they don't need a coach, I'm like, yeah, cool. Maybe you don't need a coach for where you're at right now. But how, how do you also know that you're consistently going to maintain that? Like a business that has to have systems and processes and a vision. And those systems and processes and that vision need to be sound and solid to consistently grow or consistently maintain profits. And the same in our own life. How do we know that, yeah, you might be happy and doing well now, but what are the systems and processes in your daily life around your mindset, your breathing, your nutrition, your movement, your relationships, your self-talk? The biggest one of everything is our self-talk and our mindset aspects. What are your consistent practices in the, and systems and processes to ensure that the trajectory you're on, you're not getting 5, 10, 20 years down the track, however far you want to look. You're not getting down the track and you're the one waiting in the doctor's surgery all the time for medications. Mm. You're the one that's struggling with relationships. You're the one that all of a sudden you're like, shit, I used to be super happy and you know really thriving and loving life. I'm not really sure what happened. Yeah. We don't want to get down the track and go, I wish or I wonder. You want to get down the track, whether it's one day, one year, 10 years, and say, I'm grateful for. Mm. I, um, I'm going to admit to you here that I, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts um, since being introduced to them. And um, that you speak to a lot of people in, in the same industry. And so this, you know, the, the, you know, terminology like self-talk and it's, it's just full of, full of that sort of stuff that I can kind of draw a line between, have some understanding about, but, um, I, I think self-talk is self, um, explanatory enough, but can you just, um, expand on that a little, the whole self-talk and yeah. what you mean by that? Yep, absolutely. So let me ask you this question, John, do, when you're not, when you're not talking, are you, um, oh, sorry, no, let me put it this way. Is there periods of time where you are thinking? Yes. Okay. So congratulations. You're a human. We all have <laughs> thoughts and we often have a lot of thoughts, a lot of those thoughts. So they say we have 70 to 80,000 thoughts every day. Sure. And most of those thoughts are unhelpful or disempowering and mm. they can be on repeat. And a lot of those thoughts by being unhelpful and disempowering, what they mean is it's kind of like self-judgment. So self-talk is the thoughts that we're having and the stories that we're creating in our mind. So a lot of that could be, um, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, or people judge me, or, you know, I hate the world, I hate this, or, um, you know, I, I can't believe I made that mistake, or I regret this, I resent that, I, you know, yeah. all of these kind of things. So there's self-talk that's going through our mind all the time. But it can also be things like, what am I going to have for dinner? What am I going to wear? Um, uh, you know, what? how am I going to communicate with this person? What do my kids think? Or mm. uh, how are we going to get through the next challenge or whatever it is? So 70 to 80,000 thoughts every day is a very busy mm. mind. 
Yes. And it goes really fast. It's like a chatterbox as I was going through all of those things there. So self-talk happens for everyone. Your self-talk will directly lead to, so we know that our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors are all in. So what we're thinking leads to how we feel, which Mm. leads to how we act and behave and the choices that we make in life. So, for example, if your self-talk is, um, I've always been this way and, you know, it's it's not going to change and I don't give a shit what people think and I'm just going to continue on. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll lead you to feel kind of complacent, um, maybe a bit, you know, frustrated or just annoyed or pissed off at people or the world, people who are judging you, which leads to actions of and behaviors of maybe not engaging with people because you think they judge you or not looking after your health because you, you know, you're telling yourself you don't care and it's always been this way and things and you know, you can't change and life's good anyway. I don't need to be healthy or whatever it might be. Mm. So you can see that loop. Your thoughts lead to your feelings and your thoughts and feelings lead to your actions and your choices. This is how we operate fundamentally as humans. Mm. So self talk happens automatically with humans. So the self-talk piece of learning it is to become hyper aware of what your self-talk is and know is that supporting you or in, and empowering you or is it holding you back and disempowering you mm-hmm. and just becoming brutally honest. You know, With anyone that works with me, I have two key principles, two kind of rules. One of them is be brutally honest with yourself without judgment. Mm-hmm. And the other one is take radical responsibility for your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. And when we start to align all of that, that's when, I was going to say that's when the magic happens, but that's when you really start to live in alignment and um, flourish a lot more. So does that answer your question yes, about mate. the self-talk piece? And that kind of, <laughs> yeah, it kind of answers another question that I stole, stole a quote off your webpage. Uh, living congruently is living fulfilled. Is that kind mm-hmm. of um, touching into what we were talking about where everything needs to be, you know, on point for you to be living a life of fulfillment? Yeah. Um, so congruently means in alignment and, mm. um, and to live in alignment means you know what your core values are and you, you design your life to live in alignment with that. Um, you know what your personal philosophy is and your blueprint, mm-hmm. and you design your life to ensure that you're doing that. So, for example, my top core value is my health, my physical, mental, and emotional health. And my next top core value is my family, quality time with my family. Not just family, it's quality time with my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, designing my life around that. So if my top core value is my physical, mental and emotional health, but I just go through the day and I'm working a lot and grinding a lot um, and I don't look after my physical, mental and emotional health and I'm not spending much quality time with my family, then I'm living out of alignment with my top core values. Mm. So everyone gets to design their own, but you also get to design your life to ensure that they work in alignment with your top core values. So uh, what we find is... um, fulfillment comes when you're living in alignment and you know there's a great quote as well tony robbins says a lot i'm not sure if it's his but success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure meaning you can earn a lot of money but if you're not fulfilled then that's the ultimate failure in life we have the opportunity to earn a lot of money 
earn a lot of love, earn a lot of joy, earn a lot of happiness, live in alignment with our values and our philosophy. And, and that's, you know, true fulfillment. So, um, let me just say though, that this doesn't mean living perfectly. What I really want to make clear to people is (laughs) I, I don't aim for perfection because it doesn't exist. And if you want to know how to live perfectly, I'm not the coach for you because I can't, (laughs) I can't get you there. I can't live perfectly and I don't know anyone that can. So we're not aiming for perfection. We're aiming for optimal living and optimal living is so different for everyone. John, you work away for weeks at a time and you're in quarantine. That's very different to someone, you know, and I work with a lot of people in, in the mining industry and you know, that's very different to someone who has a similar lifestyle to me where they're working from home and um, they can take their computer and work from anywhere and they have different challenges and different values and different, mm. you know, every single human is different. So I don't have a recipe for um, how you should live your life, but I do have a recipe, which I call the blueprint of non-negotiables that help humans thrive regardless of where you're living, where you're working, Mm. um, if you're in lockdown or not, what your values are, regardless of that. There is fundamental foundational elements that help humans thrive and that you can take them with you anywhere. Are you familiar with the term, um, the Peter Principle? No, please. I, I, I think it's a term that started in politics where people get promoted to, um, positions of incompetence. And, um, what I see a lot in my industry and kind of going back, well, not so much my industry, like industries I've worked with in the past, um, going back to what you're talking about, about, you know, wanting to reach goals, well, not so much goals, but strive to be better and reach those two percenters. Um, what, what I've seen in industry before is that people kind of run out of places to go. So they'll move into a, they'll take a promotion and they'll go into a role where they're no longer efficient and they don't, and they no longer enjoy what they're doing, but it's the only way for them to move if they want to progress, say in a company or something like that. And what I've often seen is that companies don't provide these people with any support to flourish in their, in their new position. Um, That's why I was asking earlier about, you know, if you're happy where you are, there's no real no well for me there's no problem in staying there right let me address that last point first of there's it's up to you what Mm. where you want to get to so let me put myself in that first example i'm more than happy i'm abundantly grateful and i'm fucking optimistic and i absolutely love life where i'm at Mm. and i am still working with other coaches in different areas and investing money and time and resources Mm -hmm. because I want to consistently live that way. And there is also things that I want to get better at. Mm. So it's not about whether you um, are just happy with where you're at. And so therefore you don't need improvement. It's about really assessing um, what it is you want in the future as well. And how do you maintain that when you say happiness, you know, what is happiness? Is it like, is that contentment? Is it fulfillment? Is it Mm. um, complacency? What is it that we're, and when I say you, I'm talking with everyone, all of us, like, cause that's how we operate as humans. So, and when I hear about that Peter principle, uh, I I see that as a, um, an organizational Mm. problem, not a, 
not a um, personal problem because like you said, if the organization doesn't support them and that's where a coach would come in and so right. the, the person would share their challenges yeah. and the coach would be able to coach them through that to say, yep, your external environment is triggering a lot of your disempowering behaviors uh, and disempowering emotions. So maybe frustration, resentment, um, fear, doubt, worry, whatever that is. So what we know is that the external environment is triggering that, but you as a human have control over your internal environment. And that's a lot of the deep work that I do with people to make mm. them realize, like I said, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, where you're living in or out of lockdown, where in the world, what your family dynamics are, the external distractions, so anything in our, that's outside of us, they can either trigger us into empowering or disempowering emotions and energetic conditions. And we have, when we do the work, we can control and deflect a lot of how it affects us. Mm. Um, kind of on a, on a similar note, uh, just, just a side question on, on goal setting, for example. Um, say, you know, I, I'm not, I've never been a gym goer. I probably started going to the gym probably three years ago for the first time ever. And, my, my aim was never to, you know, bench press more than anybody in the room or, or any of that sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm not training for a competition. I'm not into body sculpting and all that sort of stuff. And I had, um, I was seeing a personal trainer at the time and I said, how do I, how do I set goals? You know? And, um, he just said, maybe what you need to look at is just being active and physical so that you can maintain your way of life with your family, yeah, with your kids and and enjoying that. Um, and for, for me, that's been enough to keep me, you know, physical. Do you have anything to add on that at all? Firstly, I want to credit you because that is brilliant. And I that's, that's exactly how people should be thinking is, does my training support my lifestyle and me having better quality of life? Mm. Because if I, if you don't have, want to have goals like i coach people that hate the gym like cool let's not go near the gym right. we're living on the gold coast and we're dragging tires and we're walking <laughs> along the sand and we're you know um doing mostly body weight type stuff in alignment with their goals to improve their health because what i'll say to people is that movement is medicine mm. humans are designed to need to move frequently for their blood to flow better to minimize illness and disease, um, to improve sleep in every area. Movement is medicine. I, Even though I've worked with high-performance athletes my whole career, I don't push people to train hard. Mm. I, it's not a necessity to that you have to train hard to improve your quality of life. However, it's a necessity that you have to move and exercise to improve your quality of life because otherwise you're on a downward trajectory if you're not using movement or exercise on a consistent basis. It's just the way humans are designed. And so, you know, movement and exercise are different. But in answer to your question, um, credit to that PT that talked to you about that too. So, you know, it's for example, uh, I'll give myself as an example now again where I, I really enjoy the gym. Mm. But I haven't been for three months because as soon as the good weather came here in Sweden, I just said to my wife, I'm not going to go to the gym now. It's beautiful outside. I'm going to train barefoot on the grass so I'm earthing <laughs> um, with vitamin D and with the kids. My two-year-old son is my human kettlebell and yeah. I'm sitting on the ground and doing sit-ups with him and he sits on my shoulders and I do some squats and 
I've got rings hanging out of the tree in the front yard and I'm doing pull-ups with him laying on me and farting on me and things like that. <laughs> and um, so I'm ticking a few boxes of vitamin D, earthing, fun and joy and quality time with the kids, plus my movement as medicine. Um, so there's all of these different ways to look at it. And what I would say is exactly the way that you look at it and say, to be able to play with your kids and then who knows, grandkids, mm. and to be able to enjoy your quality of life. Even small things I say to people, you don't want to get a few years down the track and have pain getting in and out of the car mm. or not be able to get down low and grab something out of the cupboard or just simple things like that. So, you know, a lot of people that I've coached, I say, we do, we do a test. How, how easy can you get off the floor? And for some people, it's a real struggle. Mm. And so I'm not taking them to the gym to, to do bench press and squat heavy to say, get up off the floor better. I'm mobility training, breathing correctly, uh, strength in certain areas without weights, like body weights and all things like that. So it's to set goals is exactly like what I said. We need a vision of who we want to be in the future. Mm. And then let's set goals accordingly. So for you, you don't want to be a weightlifter or a, you know, the strongest person in the gym or anything like that. So it would be stupid for you to set goals of lifting as heavy as you can. Hmm. However, you know that certain positions you need to get into. So squatting is important, but you don't even need to squat with a bar on your shoulders. You can be doing body weight squats and, uh, and hip openers to ensure that you can move around with the kids and that you can pick stuff off, off the ground and stand up again. So goals in alignment with the lifestyle you want to live Mm -hmm. are vitally important mm. you um mentioned breathing a lot i um i don't sleep very well at night time so i started experimenting with um wim hof and some of the stuff he talks about on youtube um you care to give us any insight on breathing at all yeah, absolutely. Um, have you got a couple of days? <laughs> no, like I'll, I'll keep it brief, but <laughs> let me start with what you said. Um, Wim Hof has popularized a style of breathing called Tumo breathing that has been around for thousands of years. So credit to him for um, bringing it to the masses. But there is also so many other types of breathing. And I hear you say you have trouble sleeping at night. Mm. And on the, on the form of breathing, there is a form that, that I coach that's called sleep breathing. So I work with a lot of people that need to improve their sleep, which is almost every human because sleep is, uh, it's, it's the key ingredient for us to, to improve our quality of life. Um, so where do I start with breathing? We're breathing, we're born breathing and it's the last thing, you know, it's the first thing we do when we're born. It's the last thing we do before we die. So it's pretty important and we do it multiple times every day. So it keeps us alive. However, that doesn't mean that we're breathing efficiently. Mm. More often than not, 90, probably 99.9% .9 of the population or 99% of the population are breathing inefficiently all day, every day. So there's technology that I've got called the M-Wave Pro that measures our heart rate variability, which is the time and the variance between each heartbeat. And so what we know from this technology is that if we're not breathing efficiently, so efficiently means an even rhythmic pattern. So for example, four seconds breathing in, four seconds breathing out. At the moment I'm talking and I'm breathing very inefficiently. Mm. So there's times of the day where we're eating, talking, um, drinking, that we can't be breathing efficiently. But every other time, for example, while you're sitting there listening to me, John, and all the listeners, if they're not eating or talking or drinking, they can be doing it as well, the breathing efficiently. 
what we know about that is that um, our breathing directly links to how our heart beats and how our heart beats directly links to how our blood flows and the amount of nutrients and oxygen we get and uh, the, the quality of our physiology and biology. So if our breathing directly relates to our heartbeat and our heartbeat directly relates to all of that, including releasing stress hormones or not, Mm-hmm. and in releasing our helpful healthy hormones or not we know that breathing is the most empowering tool that we have with us everywhere we go it helps us create a calm mind instead of a busy chaotic reactive mind and from that calm clear mind we can respond rationally and logically as opposed to react irrationally and illogically uh, it helps to shift us from fear anger frustration mm-hmm. doubt resentment into courage, confidence, gratitude, presence, and focus. And from those states, we are actually operating better. Uh, breathing, it, it increases the amount of oxygen in our blood, and oxygen is the most empowering nutrient. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can give us energy. We can calm ourselves with it uh, through all these different techniques. Breathing, honestly, is the most empowering tool that we have with us that we can take everywhere we go. And I'm just going to flick back to one of the earlier questions, who needs coaching? Mm. So this is one thing that's in every element of my coaching. So even though, you know, like you said, you know, you're happy where you're at and you're not really needing the one percenters, you know, you don't know what the one percenters are that you're missing out on that can make that happiness exemplified or allow you to be a better leader in your job or to sleep better. So there's all different elements of that coaching that are available to the people. So the breathing side of things is, it's not new, but it's growing in awareness and popularity, which is awesome because we are all breathing, but very few of us are breathing efficiently and efficiently on a regular basis. Mm. And that ties in with your whole, I watched some of your, um nutritional stuff as well where living congruently right you got your breathing mm-hmm. you got your nutrition you've got your mindset and all the rest um how important is nutrition in your belief you know they've been saying for thousands of years that food is medicine and mm. and we know that and it's just been proven over and over and over and over again and nutrition is important and let me just say to preface straight away that it doesn't mean perfectly it doesn't mean um, measuring calories and not ever eating anything that you enjoy or never having a beer again or anything mm. like that. When I talk about optimal nutrition, I talk about it from a gut health and gut brain connection perspective. And so we know it's not just a thought or a hypothesis. It's scientifically proven over and over and over and over again yeah. that the food that we eat and the drinks that we drink directly impact our mental and emotional well-being. Mm. So the gut brain connection. I just think back to... um when I went to that PT, how intimidating it was for, you know, first of never having set foot in a gym before and um, that whole thing. And then he's talking about me counting calories and all this sort of stuff that was so foreign to me. And I just said to him, I just want to eat what I normally eat. I just want to get more active. And he kind of put his book away and he was all right with that. But um, I could probably go back now and, and, and take some advice from that, I think. <laughs> well, um, let me just say that counting calories is not a great, um, it's not a great method because calories in a 
Coca-Cola are very different to calories in coconut oil. Mm. Um, you can, if people counted my calories they and didn't look at me, they'd say, are you obese? <laughs> because I eat a lot of foods that are extremely high in good fats that are high in calories. Right. I've never counted calories. I've never got anyone in my life, in my coaching to count calories. Mm. There's the basic emphasis of calories in, calories out, you know, you know, if you keep that at a kind of even balance, then you shouldn't be overweight. But I can tell you now that people who aren't overweight aren't necessarily healthy. Mm. Yeah, good point. And you, you'll see a lot of people and think, oh, they're really healthy. No, they might be really fit and they might be burning off the fuel that they're putting in, but does not mean that they're healthy. So we've got to look at health differently. And this is in my optimal nutrition program where I'm saying, I say to people, I don't tell you what you can and can't eat but I'll educate you on how different things will affect you mm-hmm. and then you can choose. Mm. And so I've got lists of red and green zone foods and um, you know, gut disruptors. So what's in, causing inflammation? The, the, the number one thing that leads to illness and disease is inflammation in the body. And there is so many foods and drinks that cause inflammation in the body. So, you know, we're looking at when you say how important is nutrition, you say, well, we can survive weeks without food mm. as humans. So, and go back to the breath, we can't survive very long without the breath. Right. So obviously breathing is more of a necessity than nutrition. However, we need to eat to stay alive. So when I look at nutrition, I'm looking at the quality of your food. We're looking at getting rid of pro-inflammatory foods, foods that cause inflammation because you don't want illness and disease later on and it's absolutely 100% directly related to inflammation in your body. So let's decrease the inflammation um, by not having certain foods and by increasing other foods. Uh, And you talk about, you know, when you say you're happy where you're at and I say to people, but how do you know that your systems and processes are going to allow that to be sustainable in the future? Mm. So we're looking at things of the gut-brain connection aspect and making sure that we're not causing an inflammation and impact in that way to ensure that, yeah, as you age on your passport, your biological age, Hmm. you don't necessarily feel older each year. And in actual fact, it's it's proven over and over again. Um, And I've had my biological age tested and I'm almost 15 years younger than what I am on my passport with that biological age. So does... You know, that's the, the thing of what you've got to think about on the inside. Mm. So nutrition doesn't have to be this, count your calories, never eat this, never eat that. Uh, I've got a, for my own life, I've got an 80-20 principle and my wife and I because 80% of the time, we're not eating strict. I don't say that. We're eating in alignment because we know all of the things that cause inflammation and cause gut disruption and um, that we shouldn't be eating. Mm. And then 20% of the time, we're enjoying ourselves. But that enjoyment might be um, eating out or, you know, it's not we're going to eat the shittest food that we can for that 20% of the time because as you learn more, your awareness of why you're eating what or choosing not to eat certain things and choosing to eat certain things when you know it's in your best interest or your family's best interest or if you're career driven, it's going to help you there hmm. in so many different ways. You, you start to make your choices differently and often I'll bump it up to 90-10, so it's only 10%. And then there'll be times around Christmas or the weekend just gone, for example, was my um, sister-in-law's 30th and we had you know, a few drinks and fried foods and a lot of sugar and stuff like that. So <laughs> I was probably 70, 70, 30, you know, or maybe even a bit less. But I'll jump back on the bandwagon really quickly 
but it's not to say that you can just jump on and off. And that's the that was the mistake that I made for most of my life mm. was thinking because I was training a lot. Um, I just had to burn the calories that I put on over the weekend by partying and eating shit food and drinking a lot of piss and, mm. um, and you know, I just burn those calories during the week. But there's a good saying, you can't outrun a bad diet. Right. Meaning <laughs> you might look like you burn off the calories, but there's a lot of inflammation inside that body. And, you know, I do a lot of work with Anthony Minicello who got awarded the um, world's best rugby league player and he even talks about it and it's on my podcast and um, he runs programs on it. But, you know, at, at his best in his game, mm. he was, you know, super unhealthy and full of inflammation and he got these really, really bad spinal injuries and they told him he had to have surgery and he could never play again. He explored natural nutrition, intermittent fasting, did that for a while, got all of his discs in his back regenerated, played another three or four years after they said he couldn't play again wow. and um yeah just fully replenished so it's stories like that and i've worked with people who yeah they've just reversed a lot of illnesses and a lot of um, health problems through just making a few different things like around intermittent fasting minimizing mm. um, these pro-inflammatory foods and and actually enjoy it still absolutely loving their nutrition aspect and not feeling like they're missing out on anything and just just for the record, I'm not I'm not um saying that I'm in that position. I've got plenty of room for improvement. So um, <laughs> mate, we all do. Honestly, we all do. <laughs> uh, I'm just playing devil's advocate a lot with this stuff. So no, I I completely understand. <laughs> um, Robo, I'd like to go back to um Cobar. Yes, let's go back to Canova. Yeah, where you grew up. So, as is the premise of this of of my podcast, anyway, it's um, I see my target audience being you know school leavers and or people looking for a change in career and maybe wanting to try something else. So, a lot of my well, some of my podcast is talking about where people came from and how they came to do what they do now. So, um, yeah, Cobar, Cobar. Very small country town in western New South Wales. Population used to hover around five and a half thousand people. Very, very isolated. Uh, I was brought up there and finished high school there. My parents still live there. Mm. And Cobar is a mining town. So, you know, the whole town relies on the mining industry. So, as mining fluctuates, the town booms. As mining, the mining industry goes down, the town really struggles. Yeah. And I've, I've seen ebbs and flows of that my whole life. For me personally, growing up there, absolutely loved it. Talk about freedom. And mm. my parents were amazing and they, they had nothing but love for us. And, um, you know, I, I played every sport under the sun and um, playing footy growing up, you know, you'd have to travel hours and hours and hours just to play a game of footy. So it wasn't easy. And then when I got into sprinting and started representing the state and the country a lot more and traveling a lot, it was a lot of hours, you know, eight hours, nine hours drive to Sydney and all around the country. But Cobar just provided um, a great platform for really close mates, a lot of quality time with family, a lot of freedom. And um, in terms of, you know, work-wise, because of the mining in, in mining town, I started working for a company in year 12 uh, to – actually, it was – 
it was to save money to go away for schoolies at the, the start of it, which ended up being a job all throughout year 12. And then when I finished before I went to the Australian Institute of Sport as an athlete, I was still working there. So I was working, you know, I'd go underground and just be an offsider or I'd be working above ground and be an offsider for the builder. I was just kind of a, an everything person mm. um, in that industry. And, you know, that was, I had more jobs before that, you know, toilet cleaner, um, flipping burgers at a cafe, uh, um, yeah, cleaning a, another business, the family business in town. Hmm. But then, yeah, working in that in that industry, and I I knew that I didn't want to work in the mining industry, not because I hated the mining industry, but because you know my dad still works in the industry. My brother has a thriving business um, in the mining industry in Canada. Or a lot of my mates have big businesses or work in the industry Mm. it's not the industry it was me i was an athlete and i wanted to be an athlete yeah and so i had to you know leave that town and leave that industry and i moved to to canberra to be an athlete at the australian institute of sport and studied advanced diploma in soft tissue therapy and became a therapist a performance therapist for high performance sport with olympic and paralympic athletes and traveling the world there and then moved into high performance coaching and traveling the world with them. So, mm. Cobar, um, whilst it had zero opportunities for me in the industry I wanted to be in, it also didn't hold me back from going in the direction that I wanted to go in. Mm. What I found interesting about um, listening to your podcast and you growing up in Cobar was um, this term I'd never heard before. Um, and it's so synonymous in the Australian kind of psyche where you were training your ass off all the time and your mates were just, um, you know, bludgeoning around and they called you a love job. I've never, never heard that term before. Yeah. Um, that wasn't my mates. They, they were, uh, yeah. The haters. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So let me elaborate on that. So yeah, my mates, um, they definitely weren't, they were super supportive. Like they loved it, what I was doing. And, yeah. you know, I, I was telling a story once before that, through year 11 and 12 and I'd be training on the, the, the oval, this grass oval in the afternoons and my mates would be in the golf cart on the golf course beside that and, you know, drinking beers and hitting golf balls at me in a fun kind of way. <laughs> run faster, Not in a run way faster. that they me out. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, <laughs> some, some fun things like that. Um, yeah, my mates are bloody legends and they supported me through everything. But there was guys in town, um, especially at a younger age, that, you know, because I was – performing well in sport mm. and I was in the newspaper and people knew what I was up to uh, and you know because I was good at stuff I would get this title like love job and I actually got beaten up quite a bit when I was younger um, about being this love job and a love job in that terminology like you love yourself like you're yeah. up yourself you know look at you 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 think you're better than everyone else and things like that, that. and um, and here's the difference between between cocky and confidence that people who are cocky will tell you how good they are. Mm. People who are confident will just do the job and you'll just see how good they, how are. they are. Yeah. I never had a voice to be cocky. And so that love job and whether it was beaten out of me at a young age or whatever, it just wasn't in my blood. So yeah, that was, um, that was a shame that I sort of went. It's that. so Australian. Like I spent a couple of summers in, in the States and, and it's interesting hearing how positive you are giving how negative Australians can be, you know, like we'd sooner tear somebody down than, you know, give a compliment. Like I spent some time in America and it's like, 
it was so foreign to me for guy, you know, people you're hanging out with, you know, you'll buy a new shirt or something and they say, oh, that shirt looks good on you. As Australians, we would never say that. It's just not what we do. And um, I think we, well, there should be a way to change this in, in our culture. Like we just, it's the Australian way of life just to tear each other down, right? Um, yes and no. So when you say, you know, it's just the Australian way and Australians would never say that, what I would say is there's a certain elements of cult, Australian culture that are like that. Mm. Because there's a hell of a lot of Australians that I've come to meet over the years that aren't like that. Mm. Yeah. And You're that right. didn't didn't grow up in a culture like that. Or maybe they were surrounded by it, but they're just not like that. Like there's a lot of super genuine souls and even a lot of the people that do say that you know it's like taking the piss right so a lot of people say it and don't mean it yes so yes. there's a lot of context around it that is just in a joking kind of way as well mm. so um the thing like i'll go back to where you said you know i'm so positive about it and it's because like i say to people i didn't know it back then but you can't offend me so if you say to me, Robbo, that fucking shirt is disgusting or your life sucks or whatever, right? anything anyone ever says to me, it, it does not offend me. But if I am offended, that's not because what someone else said. That's because I choose to be offended at what they say. Mm. Because it's never about the other person and what they say or do. It's always about us and how we perceive that. And this comes back to a lot of that work that we are talking about before, but let's keep it in context with what we were saying there. So I'm very positive about it. I'm actually grateful that I experienced what I experienced when I was younger and getting beaten and called a love job, even though at those times I hated it and I didn't know what it meant. Oh, sorry, mm. I didn't know why I was getting beaten for that. Um, I'm grateful for every experience in my life because if I'm not grateful, I'm resentful. Mm. Or if I'm not grateful, I'm um, you know, in hate or I want revenge or anything like that. And those elements in our life only cause stress and fuel that. So the it's up to me, and that's why it's saying this to everyone that yeah, we're in a cult you know, Australia has that culture of if you're taking a piss and it's fun, you know when that's happening. Mm, but if people mm. are doing it from a place of actually hating on you or, you know, not necessarily you, but other people and they're throwing um, resentment or anger or fear at you and they're saying those things and they really mean it. It's about them. Mm. The people who are throwing the stones are the ones that have the challenges that they haven't worked through. And so it's not about you and the shirt that you wear or what you say or how you walk or anything like that. It's about the people and how they perceive that. Mm. Do you have a message for the bullies, mate? It's that's a that's a really interesting question. Are, are we talking school age bullies or are we uh, talking workplace bullies? Yeah, well, more more like I'd I've had some experience with um, younger people and trying to find their way in life, right? And you know they're often condemned by these bullies, and that leads them down, you know, stops them living their dreams or following their dreams, for example. Um, yeah, so I guess it's more younger on age that type note, people. On that note, it's not the bullies that stop the people from following their dreams. Mm. It's the person stops themselves from following their dreams because 
I was bullied, I was bashed, I was beaten, and that did not fucking stop me from following my dreams. I went to the AIS and I trained my ass off, mm. and I took a career in a direction. You know what? Years later, I went back to Cobar and I was sitting at the pub, and there was one of those bullies there that used to bash me and call me a love job and hate me. And I was taller than him, I was stronger than him, I was bigger <laughs> than him, and I went up and I offered, I wanted to shout him a beer. Because even at that age, before I'd done this work, I had no resentment against him because I suddenly realized, and it wasn't a comparison to say, look at me, I've made it and you haven't. It was just like, oh, his life is very different. Mm. I don't know. Was he bashed as a kid when he was growing up and he just took it out on me? He wasn't taught how to be a good human by his parents. That's not his fault. Mm. Like I don't agree with the way that he treated me or other people, but I see it differently. So when people are bullied, unfortunately, we let it get us down to the point where it might stop us from chasing our dreams. But it's not because of the bully. It's only because of how you respond to the bullying because that bully is one person or if there's 10 of them, that's 10 people. And if they're calling you a love job or making you say that you're fucking stupid and you'll never achieve those dreams, that's just 10 people in the world or one person in the world. Mm. If you ask, there's 8 billion people on the planet. If we say to 8 billion people on the planet, to those kids that you're talking about, um, you know, is this kid a useless person that'll never achieve their dreams? Eight billion people will not agree, so it's not the truth. It's just that bully expressing their challenges and their um, poor emotional intelligence and their probably poor upbringing, to be honest. Mm. So when we look at it all in that context, like the message to the bullies is, is hard one, but to the person who's being bullied, I would just say, you know, it's, it's not the truth. It's not the answer. It's just a challenge. Mm. And we will have challenges all life from people, from COVID pandemics, from, <laughs> you know, judgment, from the weather, from people you love dying. And I say that in the way of like, that's just reality. And mm. so every challenge that you get through that doesn't stop you from doing being the person that you want to be, every challenge that you get through, you grow, grow stronger from that. So for those kids that have been bullied a lot, man, if they cannot let that stop them, it will actually be fuel for them to be better and achieve more than what they thought was possible for in their lives. Do you have a lot to do with um, coaching kids? or is I've been through stages of working with kids and there's elements that I love and there's elements that are really challenging. And mm all the way from stepping into primary schools and doing uh, with my good friend Amber and the Calm Mind Co that we were doing, working with kids from kindergarten mm. all the way through to year 12 and their teachers and their parents, teaching them how to breathe efficiently, teaching them um, self-taught aspects. Obviously, the language changes through different ages and the way we present it, but um, and I've worked one-on-one with a lot of kids, high school kids. Uh, I've helped high school kids get off anti, uh, sorry, off um, anxiety medication mm. um, through the work that we do. So yes, I've done the work with the kids and I've come to realize that actually my, my best work is with the adults because I see the working with kids is really powerful to prevent the challenges later. Mm. Uh, however, I find that working with adults and especially men and at a certain kind of age bracket there is even more impact and then the ripple effect that they can have on their kids Mm. is really powerful. Yeah. And I guess that's another question is, you know, you had a message for the bullies. Do you have a message for the, for the parents of bullies, for example, not to harp on about bullies, but. 
<laughs> um, be better. <laughs> yeah, and see, that's a hard one again because whilst I say that the upbringing could be, you know, a big part of it, it's also not to say that the parents are 100% to blame because mm. I know when I went through a certain phase, I was a shit of a kid. My parents were amazing, <laughs> but I didn't listen to curfew and I hung out with some kids that really influenced me in a negative kind of way. So <laughs> right. there is a lot to that. So that my message to the parents of bullies is probably more around, um, you know, do you accept and support what your kids are doing? And if not, are you willing to invest the time and resources to help them change mm. because there is always support there. Uh, the reason I asked about um, your work with kids is uh, I did a podcast recently with a tennis coach and I was, I was a tennis player as a kid. And um, I said, you know, he, he's bringing kids through the whole program from four-year-olds all, all, all the way to, you know, potentially touring, touring athletes. And I said, at, at what point or do you at all introduce the concept of sports psychology to kids and he's like well you know we'll we'll talk about you know the self-talk and all that sort of stuff but it's not actually a a program as such um do you think that needs to be addressed more in kids sport uh yeah absolutely and i've actually done some programs with kids sports and here in sweden uh, with some athletics clubs from young ages and mental strength training mm. and I when I was a Paralympic coach for Athletics Australia I had athletes from as young as 13 all the way through to you know retirement age and uh, yes I do because the challenges that kids have in sport might be different to the challenges to people like you and I in with family and kids and relationships however it always comes down to human behavior and there's mm. these fundamental aspects that we know. And I can tell you now that the biggest thing that prevents people from fulfilling their potential is not their strength or their speed or their agility or their skill set. It's their mindset. Mm. 100% guaranteed. Red Bull did a study on it years ago to just look at, you know, how can we have all of these athletes that are so similar in strength and speed and agility mm. and skill sets, but why do these athletes dominate? What's the difference? It's their mind. Yeah, and it's the same with the young the young kids, you know. And so many coaches have said to me over the years, "Oh, this kid's got so much potential, but they just can't execute on that potential." Mm. And you start to talk to these kids, and they're fucking fearful. Mm -hmm. they, you know, they step out to play a game of tennis or on the athletics track or whatever, and their mind goes to, "I wonder what the crowd's going to think. I hope I don't fail. If I fail, what what will people think of me?" Mm. You know, there's self talk there. That's all judgment. That's not focus. The skill of focus is the fundamental number one skill that all humans should have and that's what athletes who do really well and do it well consistently they have the skill of focus and then the skill to refocus because you will be distracted do you get frustrated like uh, i mentioned i'm a tennis player well i'll call myself a tennis player i i indulge a little in tennis um i think nick Kyrgios, for example is one of the most um talented players he, he's got an x factor when it comes to tennis and for me it just I, when i see him implode it just um really gets me down because i can see his ability um what would you say to nick <laughs> uh i would a good question for nick is you know 
where do you really want to get to with mm. your sport? Yeah. Because exactly like what you said is, and if he said, I want to be world number one, he'd say, well, what are you willing to do to get there? Mm. And if he said, I'll do anything to get there, then you say, okay, do you trust me that I can help you and I will give you everything when you say you'll do anything? And if he gives you that full trust, I would say, right, the first thing we're going to work on is your attitude. Mm. And when I say attitude, that's the self-talk, that's the mindset aspects because what we see with people like that is, and tennis is a great example where people will implode a lot or explode, sorry. Mm. And so it's not to say that you can't be the world's best consistently without exploding and having that temper. But you will see guys like your Federer's, um, like your Nadal's, who maintain focus mm. and calmness way, way, way more than they will explode, mm. if at all. So, and but then you'll see other athletes like um, Djokovic. Djokovic, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. You Djokovic. know, where it. He world's best consistently, but he explodes a lot. Yeah. So there's examples of both yeah, of exactly. what can work. But then you look at Curious and say, you're not world's number one. Mm. And you're certainly not at the top consistently. So you're, what's missing? Mm. If you've got all this skill and this talent, what's missing is that your ex- expl- explosions are your limiting factor. Mm. So if you'll do anything to get to the top, let's work on that. Yeah, and may, like maybe maybe it's like what you said, you know, he, he doesn't know what he wants from the game, and um, once you make that decision, then you can make the changes, I guess. Um, on that note, I heard Djokovic on a podcast talking about he got to a stage, a point in his career where he sort of weighed up, and you know, he was getting injured, and uh, no, he wasn't getting injured. That's right, but he was losing more games in a row, more losing, more losing, more. And he just sat down with his team and said, what's the point? Like, you know, maybe it's time. And his team said to him, why did you start playing tennis in the first place? Mm. You know, and then why did you continue on when you got really good? And he's, you know, I just love it. Like, I love the sport. I love the feeling of the racket. And I love the, I love the challenge of it. And I love that feeling of success. And, you know, his passion came out in those words. And they said, do you still love it? Do you still love all of that? Mm. Because if you don't, then maybe it's time to move on. And he mm. thought about it and he really deeply spent time on it. He's like, you know what? I love that feeling. I love the challenge. I love the game. I love playing. I love training. I love success. Um, and, you know, and he said the next day, they said, well, just take some time off and just be with that for a while and then come back with that. Mm. And he said, I turned up to training the next day and I was good again. And I said, you sure? And he said, yep. Said, that was all I needed to, as a reminder. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, even people at the top doing really well will go in those um, mental slumps. Mm. Um, I was just going to have a bit of a dig at the Brisbane Broncos, as I know you, um, you've worked with them before. Um, <laughs> how, would you, um, how would you explain what's happening to them in the last year or two? It's been that long, right? I mean, to go from uh, consistently top eight finishing team to um, wooden spoon, were they wooden spooners last year? Was that all close to? Without um, shitting on any of your friends there, of course. <laughs> I don't have any friends at the, the Brisbane Broncos. The t- 
um, the time that I was working there it was when it was the baby Broncos and they were actually doing you know really, really well. well and there was a lot of new <laughs> players coming through and but I was only doing a little bit of work there um, as a massage therapist so I wasn't in there coaching so right, right. I don't really have a deep connection but um, let's say it's not so people might be listening thinking I don't really care about the Brisbane Broncos or the NRL mm. right so let's let's that's so what you're giving me is an example there of a team that has done really well and then all of a sudden they flip that and they're on the bottom. At this day, at this time, what I would even say is how much of an impact did COVID have on them? Mm. How much did they let lockdowns, restrictions, rules, no crowds, all of these changes affect them? Um, and even though in Brisbane they were affected a hell of a lot less, but you know, you look at Olympians here, we just had the Olympics and we've now got the real show has just begun the Paralympics um, at this time of the recording. And I say that because I love the Paralympics and I've been in that for 15 years as a coach and a therapist, a lot of friends in there. But the Actually, Olympics just, just real, that- real quick on that, I saw Dylan Alcott um, getting interviewed the other day and I thought it was you talking because he was um, so greeting everyone as legends and, and I've listened to some of your podcasts and um, have you met him? <laughs> and maybe that's where he got it from. Well, that's where you got it from. <laughs> um, I know Dilcott, uh, Dylan very, very well. So the first Paralympics in 2008, uh, he was only a young whippersnapper there in the wheelchair basketball team. He didn't play tennis back then. All right. And he and the boys won a gold medal. And I've got photos of him and I celebrating with um, – with a big cigar and a, and a beer. And um, so I've known him for a lot of years. So I'm not sure if he took legends from me or if it's just language <laughs> that we've become accustomed to, but um, I definitely didn't get it from him. But I've known him. Yes, I've, yes, I've met him. I know him really well um, and have been to, to many games and um, uh, different celebrations with him as well. Hmm. <laughs> So back to let me just go back to that question and say um, that we were talking about before with the so what the Olympics showed for us was that um, you know all those athletes from all around the world were impacted by no competition their jobs were taken away from them they yeah. couldn't compete yeah they like that people don't that would be like um, the people in in Australia that have lost their jobs because of the ridiculous rules that have come into play and businesses can't survive. Mm. So it was the same with athletes where they don't have competition. Why would someone, why would a sponsor keep sponsoring an athlete if they're not going to be in mainstream media and they're not going to get the coverage? Like a lot of athletes were impacted significantly. Mm. And even if they weren't impacted financially, you might say, yeah, that's fine. They still got paid. How do you think it affected them mentally and emotionally? Like, Athletes, that's their life. That's their identity. And a lot of them say, well, who am I without that? So what the Olympics proved was those people who could stay focused even when those challenges hit. Mm. The people who were still winning and breaking records and doing personal bests in their events were the ones who went, oh, shit, there's a lot of challenges here. I'm going to train today. Yeah. Oh, I can't leave my house um, to, to socialize. I'm going to focus on my breathing or do more stretching or whatever it is. Mm. How can I be a better athlete even with these external distractions? So when you talk about the Broncos, how much of everything that happened affected them? And then other than that, I don't know anything about their internal workings of um, what's, what's the culture change and why, what's the leadership change and why, what's um, you know, what, what is affected there? Have they tried new things from a 
uh, a physical standpoint that just haven't paid off or you know there could be a lot I, I actually don't know enough information to be able to answer that question but mm. just to to look at things from the context of sport and athletes that um if, if there's that big of a switch there's obviously something going on culturally yeah or mentally yeah Mm. Well, I've got um got a question here. So you've you left Cobar and you went to the AIS, or how did yep. it all come about? Was it was it running or was it rugby league? Or I read a couple of different things that um did you had some interest from from a rugby league team or was running yeah, the primary? So when I was still living in Cobar and playing junior footy. I had, I was from 15, I was on a really small kind of quote unquote contract with the Parramatta Eels junior development squad. And, um, and then I got offers from the Brisbane Broncos wanted to put me through a boarding school and the Roosters, um, came into play at one stage and offered me. And, uh, when I got towards the end of year 12, you know, I was still doing a lot of sprinting and I was, really good at the one and 200 meters and long jump mm. and I had um, but I was playing a lot of football as well and it got to one point where I remember some there was some clashes with rep footy and state athletics and things like that and at that age and the selector started saying to me look you're probably gonna have to make a decision soon mm. you won't be able to do both once you finish school so you're gonna have to make a decision soon so when I sat with that at that young age from what I knew at that time and the way that my mind worked I said you know, it was really, really hard because I loved footy and I loved athletics, but I thought, why don't I give athletics a crack? And, you know, if that doesn't work out, I'll be a lot faster so mm. I can come back to footy. But if I go footy first and I bulk up or get lots of injuries, I can't just go and give athletics a crack. So that was my mindset at the time. And so I was offered contracts at the AIS sorry, not contracts, uh, offered position to, to train at the AIS post mm. year 12. Um, so I took that up and I stopped playing footy partway through year 12 just to, to focus on the, um, or towards the end of year 12, just to focus on the athletics. So because I was winning or coming top three at state and national titles, the right. AIS coaches are there looking for the next lot of talent to come through. So that's how they picked me up through that and offered me the position there at the AIS. It's um something that, interests me like i've never been a great at any any sport i guess but um having just had the uh olympics and seeing all those amazing athletes and how much of those people have to work work a job as well as training and all the rest um what you know to be a a full-time athlete for example surely you don't get into it for the money you just get into it for the love you know and so rugby league would be you know, for a lot of people, a bigger draw card, given that potentially you'd make more money from rugby league. Uh, how do you get paid as an athlete, for example? Um, yeah, so track and field in Australia mm. versus rugby league. So the choice that I made was definitely not financial because right. I had to pay for everything as a track and field athlete. Mm. <laughs> you know, travel and my gear and everything. Well, there was a little bit involved with the AIS, but um, as a footballer, you get given everything you get supported with everything plus you get paid good money so some sports you walk into money so i worked in the afl for a lot of years as well mm. and uh, for the sydney swans and you know those guys 
walk on contracts. I think for the young kids, it starts at 80 grand. Mm. Um, but athletics, Sally Pearson wins a gold medal at the Olympics and she gets $50,000 from Athletics Australia. That, that's what I mean. That's what I can't comprehend. How do you stay, so, how do you stay motivated? How do you stay in it and think, well, I've still got to pay the bills and I've still got to look after my family, yet I've still got to train for, you know, 60, 70 hours a, a week or however much they do. This is what you call living in alignment. These athletes in these sports love what they do. Mm. It, it allows them to live a lifestyle. It allows them to fulfill their potential. When you know you have potential and you want to fulfill that in a sport, uh, and if that means that you're not really going to get financially rewarded and you have to work as well, then you design your life around that. And the people who complain about that need to, um, you know, they're not the ones that are going to be as successful as possible. Mm. So the way that they, you know, the question that you're asking is, is kind of coming from a sense that money is the only thing or that money is everything. Well, you kind of and, need money to live though. Yeah, you need money to live. And they make money and they work for money and they get, they might make a little bit of prize money or some of them don't right. or, um, you know, in those, those who get to the top and are doing a lot more of the international events, they get a bit of prize money and sponsorship. Mm, okay. They don't earn the ease of money and the hundreds of thousands like footballers do, mm, but mm. they also learn that they don't need that. Yeah. So there's a, yeah. there's the difference of what, you know, they don't have lots of, cars or lots of toys or you know mm. lots of debt so they learn to live a life where they are fulfilled mm. without having to spend a lot of money or and therefore not needing to earn as much money yeah money is great you know but it's not the be all and end all when you're fulfilling your potential and living a life of fulfillment mm. yeah and there's other ways that they earn their money as well when, when you consider that with your rugby leagues and all that sort of stuff, even American football and the money involved in those, those industries. And then you see your track and field athletes and yeah, it's, it's really about the passion for the sport at that level. Yeah, absolutely. Look, my wife was a world championship level race walker. So, uh, her mum was world champion twice. So she was kind of born into the sport and she tried to make 2016 Olympics but got quite injured and had to retire just before that. But she didn't make any money, zero. Mm. And she had to pay for so much of her own stuff. But she stuck with it for so long because she, her dream and her goal was to fulfill her potential, which meant to do a PB at the Olympic Games. Mm. She had to work pretty much a full-time job she'd get up early and train go to work all day finish work and go and train yeah <laughs> and that, that was her life six days a week and that's what I, and, I picture their lives to be it's just it's just full on it is full on it is so full on and um you know it, it, there's a lot of athletes in different positions and there's a lot of Australian track and field athletes that have picked up different sponsorships here and there or if they're making finals at diamond leagues around Europe and uh, you know, in the Olympics and there, there is money to be made in track and field, but it's the few and far between. Mm. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the, the guys that you see winning medals at the Olympics um, for Australia might have a little bit of sponsorship um, as well as getting a little bit of money from Athletics Australia 
and um, but also some of them still work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's very challenging because their work can't be a full eight hours because if they're training once or twice a day, recovery and physio and um, sports psychology and everything takes up a lot of time as well. So it's a real love for and dedication for, and that's why when you know you look at sports like that, you've got to really, really respect and appreciate that these athletes. Um, they design, they fundamentally design their lives mm. for success. Yeah. Not for money, for success. No, for exactly right. And that's where we were talking about the difference between the two earlier. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, can we just talk briefly about this, um, the tissue, the soft tissue job you had at the AIS? Yes. What, um, so you, you trained in that, um, formal training? Yeah. So when I went to the AIS from Cobar, I did a two and a half year. I was, so here's a prime example. I was a, a full-time athlete. Mm. I was a full-time student and working part-time. So I, it was a two and a half year advanced diploma full-time, which is, um, you know, I could have went and done another two years and been a physiotherapist. So soft tissue therapy is, sports massage and injury management. And um, so then once I finished that, because I was at the AIS and I was training alongside and working with Paralympic athletes there, I got an opportunity to travel as a soft tissue therapist with the Australian Paralympic athletics team for the 2006 World Championships in the Netherlands. Mm. Uh, it was not paid and <laughs> it was voluntary, but all my travel was obviously paid for. So I took that as an opportunity and I took regular unpaid voluntary opportunities for more than two years. So even when I went to the Beijing Paralympics where I was telling you I was enjoying a cigar with celebrating with Dylan Alcott, Dylan Alcott. Yeah. Um, that was unpaid. You know, <laughs> I would travel and we went to, I went to France with the distance athletes and we did our pre-departure training camp in the Pyrenees in the mountains in France. Mm. And then we went somewhere else and then we went into Beijing. I was gone for three months unpaid. So I had to work hard before that, save up all my money. It, you know, all the travel and most food was paid for, but I still wanted to have a beer now and again or eat out or, you know, do some touristy things. So I needed cash. Plus, I was still paying rent and things for my house back home. So hmm. um, a lot of that was unpaid work. It wasn't until towards the end of 2009 when I started traveling with the Paralympic winter ski team that I started getting paid and then um, – you know, traveling the world. So wheelchair rugby, which is also known as murder ball. I was their therapist for a lot of years, track and field, and also the winter snow ski program. And uh, yeah, like I said, wasn't getting paid for that. But the lifestyle, like we were traveling with the ski team to, you know, Whistler in Canada and mm. France and Italy and different parts of um, America and spending days on end for months on end on some of the world's best mountains. And, um, you know, even when I started getting paid for that, it wasn't that much, but <laughs> I, you know, so i never did it for the money. Right. A lot of my work that I did. And even then when I got into full-time coaching mm. at back at the Australian Institute of Sport as a full-time coach. So I'd been a therapist for a lot of years and, you know, earning some good money by the end of that. And then I decided I wanted to transition into coaching. They put me on $40,000 a year, including superannuation. Wow. And, and, you know, I just, what do you do? Yeah, like, I want to be the best coach that I can be. Of course, I'm going to take that opportunity. So yeah. I started doing boot camps 
um, three or four mornings and afternoons a week to supplement that income and doing massage with different sporting teams as well. Physical coaching as well as um, like performance coaching, uh, the mindset exercises and all the rest, or was it more um, so, as a PT No, back then it training. was just physical coaching. Right. So when I was in high performance sport, I was just doing the physical coaching and the mm-hmm. performance therapy. So I would be, I was a strength and conditioning coach, speed coach, um, doing all of their fitness, doing their periodization, their planning, everything for the athletes that I was working with. It wasn't until 2017 that I transitioned into the work that I do now. Um, which came from after some massive adversity in my life, which changed my perspective on the world and mm. and allowed me to see that even though I was on a really good trajectory in my career, you know, I got coach of the year in 2017. Yeah, and wow. I was mentored by some of the world's best coaches. And I knew that if I just continued, I could be one of the world's best coaches. Mm. But I looked at the lifestyle required and the travel and how much that impacted against my core values and how much that would take me away from my family. And I said, I don't want that. Mm. That's an amazing career and you get paid a bit more at the top, obviously, but I actually don't want that. That's not in alignment with my values and my philosophy. So I decided to go on this path and design my life around the work that I love. Is that when you started with the podcasting as well? Yeah, so 2017. So when I quit my job at the top and I knew, I gave them three months notice and, and left on a really good note and told them, you know, this is where I'm heading and um, you know, I want to realign with my my values and I have a passion to impact the lives of hundreds of thousands of people to, to enhance and optimize my grandparents' legacy and mm. I can't do that in this sport and um, I have these other visions and dreams and I'm going to follow those. And so, yeah, podcasting was the start of that and then I did a lot more study around neuro-linguistic programming and mindset coaching, acceptance and commitment therapy, emotional intelligence work and built all of that into, they're all the gaps that I didn't get in high performance sport. And that's how I created my performance coaching models and working with people now. What, um, so was, would you say that the, the tragedy that happened with your grandparents was, was a catalyst for, for change in yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But without a doubt. And you know, I'm happy to share what that tragedy was and, and how that happened or... Yeah, know. if you don't mind, mate, it's just just so the listeners, um, entirely up to you, but just so that the listeners aren't in the dark. Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to share it because, uh, yeah, because of how that has shifted and, and because of, of what that looks like now. But, you know, growing up in Cobar, my grandparents were a big part of my life there, um, mm. my mum's parents and... And they were happily married for 53 years. So mm. I learned what love was for them because my parents split up when I was three. Really? Uh, they were still really good friends and, and did so much for us together, but um, I didn't see love from them in that way. So they showed me what romance and love was and, <laughs> and they were romantic, kissing and cuddling. And, you know, you know, my grandfather would call my grandmother sexy legs. And as we got older, <laughs> they would tell us about their sexual life a little bit as well in you know, a fun kind of way. So they taught me a lot about what love and respect was and, and they had a lot of respect from the community. And my grandfather was my athletics coach for the, from year 9, 10, 11, 12 at high school and he didn't know anything about coaching but he also saw that if he didn't take me on board and, and we worked together then I'd probably I'd be probably the one on the golf course drinking beers and right. hitting golf balls at the other <laughs> kids training, you know, like they'd easily get derailed into the, the drinking culture there. So he took me on and 
he became my best mate and my idol and my mentor. We would travel all around the country together and, and work together towards my goals. He's the reason why I got to the AOS as an athlete. Like he kept me on track in that way. Mm. So my grandparents were amazing. And um, unfortunately, in it was the end of 2014, mm. um, they, were, they were murdered in their own home back in Cobar. And it was by their own son my uncle um, who was living with them and and he he obviously he he was mentally ill and um, but that just tore a a massive massive hole in my life and it took me into some deep dark places and, and an emotional journey that I just didn't know could exist when, you know, I said at the start of this podcast that I've always been an optimistic lover of life. Yeah, and for sure. All of a sudden, that rug was ripped out from underneath me. That's um, that's a lot to and, deal with. When I first heard this, when I was listening to one of your podcasts, um, the first thing that came to mind was: Did you have a relationship with your uncle before all this happened? Or yeah, look, he had a a lifetime of um in and out of rehab and he was an alcoholic and had done a lot of drugs when he was younger. And, um, you know, he, he'd abused people in town and stuff like that. But Mm. my grandparents are just such loving, caring Mm. people. And my grandmother, I never understood why they would, it was more my grandmother that they would always try and bail him out and pay Mm. for court fees and, um, help him through rehab and then bring him home and and house him. And even though he treated them like shit and he talked about them like rubbish and, Mm. It was so sad to see and um, he had two beautiful kids to, you know, an ex-wife. They didn't last long for, for obvious reasons, but their kids were like my best mates and our younger cousins and oh, they were nothing wow. like their father. And so we had the relationship and, um, yeah, we had a relationship with him for a lot of years where we just kind of accepted him being around. Yeah, but it got to a point yeah. where one year I went back to Cobar for Christmas and I called my grandmother and I said, he's not welcome at our Christmas. Wow. Yeah, and she said, "Are you sure, please? Like you'll be the only one that won't be there." And I said, "He has done nothing but disrespect our family. He abuses you guys." Like one year, I watched him punch my grandmother in the face. Oh my god! And needless to say, that I think I was eighteen years old. No, I was still at school. I was only sixteen years old. Mm. My brother and I went straight in, and we—I <laughs> um, don't say this in a proud way, but we beat yeah. the shit out of him because. He had just walked around town smashing cars and beating up someone else and then punched my grandmother in the face. Mm. And my reaction at that time was abuse. Yeah, justifiable. Yeah, yes and no. Um, like I don't I don't like I said, I'm not no, proud you're of not that. Proud of um, it, but, yeah. yeah, and I've never actually shared that openly on it's not a secret. Like the police were involved and we had to fill out um reports and stuff like that. And um, you know, he thought about dropping charges on us at that time and the mm. police actually said you know, he can't in that self-defense kind of way and all this kind of stuff but, but sorry it wasn't self-defense but it was actually stopping because he had he then turned and was um going to attack my mother but anyway so yeah. you know there's a lot of shit that's gone down in the years around mm. my uncle and um for him to pull a shotgun out of the cupboard and, and shoot his parents um, and then not only after that, he went to the pub and had a beer and just told the publican who called the police. And then when the police 
on video interviewed him. Mm. Um, he just told them all the details and and he said, you know, I'm fine. I'm glad it's happened. Like, and they said, how do you feel? And he said, I feel free. Wow. So he's just, he got diagnosed with um, paranoid schizophrenia, which means you've got a, a lifetime of grandeur delusions. Mm. Um, and it was disappointing. It, it was, I was like, yep, that makes complete sense. I understand the human mind. And the disappointing part was why wasn't he put away in yeah. a mental institution many, many years ago? because there was evidence on the wall for that. But back to that that Christmas when I called my grandmother and she said, she cried to me on the phone and she said, Brett, if his own mother can't love him, then who can? Yeah. And that's when my heart sunk and I finally realized she's doing it because she believes that she's the only person that can ever help him. Yeah, he's got no one else. And yeah. she, he's got no one else and and I wasn't a parent at that stage but mm. I could only imagine what it's like as a mother to feel like a failure wow she she sounds realized, like a you know, very special lady she was and um you know you can like kind of look at it. I used to say I don't believe it now but I used to say her own love killed her in the end mm. because yeah. it was her love that kept him out of prison and in their own home and you know it was him that killed mm. her but you know it's with all of that messiness, um, it came out in court that that Christmas we were supposed to be coming home and he found out that we weren't and we were going to have Christmas somewhere else and he got really pissed off and it turns out that he'd been um, digging his mass grave out in the wilderness and was planning on knocking us all off that Christmas. So, in, you know, in his <laughs> in his grandeur delusions, he had a lot of shit going on in his head that could have been, you know, it's the worst it could be, yeah. and, but it could have been worse. So it's, it's fucking crazy to think about it in that way. But, you know, one of the, the things that allows me to, to speak about that um, mm. kind of in an open way now is that when I started getting psychology help a couple of months later from the sports psychologist at the Institute of Sport, and they knew all of this and all the story and, you know. I, and you were still training? You were still training at the time? No, I wasn't an athlete then. I was a coach. Right. So I was a full-time. I'd been through my athlete days. I'd been yeah, yeah. transitioned into a therapist and I now transitioned into a full-time coach. And um, the so what was I, 26 years old or something like that? And mm. the the psychologist had listened to me and you know I said, I've never lost anyone close to me before. And she said, Robbo, it sounds like a part of your life has ended. Mm. I said, yeah, well, actually, it feels that way. And then she said, because you know, I said, you know, I've also never lost anyone close to me before. I don't understand this darkness that I'm in and this this anger and resentment and this deep sadness. I just don't understand it all. And, mm. and she said, you know, you're going to be more of a whole person and a stronger person after going through this. And I still remember, like, sitting there with my head in my hands and tears welting up. And, and I thought about what she said in that moment and it kind of clicked and I slowly looked up at her with tears rolling down my face and I had a big smile on my face and I said Kate that's the best thing you could have ever said to me <laughs> because every day all I want to do is be a better version of myself so I can help other people be a better version of themselves mm. so if I have to look at this most fucked up situation in my life in that way that it's going to make me a stronger better version and I can help other people because of it then that's exactly how I'm going to look at it and it became a turning point. That was a massive mindset shift for me. 
Mm. It didn't mean everything came back to normal straight away, but it allowed me to start to look at things differently. And instead of being the victor, the victim, sorry, of those circumstances, instead of hating my uncle and having so much fucking anger and resentment, because mm-hmm. when I was in those states, I wasn't the best partner to my gorgeous partner, who's now my wife. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the best coach for my athletes. I wasn't the best support for my family when I'm angry and resentful and fucking hating. Mm. So I had to shift and I got to choose to shift into gratitude and be extremely grateful for the amazing relationship that I had with my grandparents. Be extremely grateful for the impact that they had on my life and the community. You know, there were huge community members. There was two and a half thousand people at their funeral in Cobra. Mm. You know, there was... This, this way that I had to start to shift. And that's why when I know about working with human behavior now, I've experienced the top of my game and I've experienced the deepest, darkest moments and everything in between. And it's not to say that you have to experience that to be able to help people, but I get it from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So I understand you know, going back to that bully talk where I say to the kids, it's, it's not the bully, it's how you choose to let the bully affect you. So it's not the circumstance in my life. It didn't. It took me into deep, dark places, but now I live in complete alignment and I'm thriving and I've designed my lifestyle to be able to spend an amazing quality time with my family every single day because that's what's important to me. Yeah. I'm earning way more money than I ever could have in sport or in the mining industry and absolutely loving life. And it's all changed since that tragedy because I look at the world differently and realize it's not this linear approach Mm. and I anchor every day into my grandparents enhancing and optimizing their legacy being great community member because they were impacting lives significantly to enhance and optimize their legacy you know being amazing parent and family member because they were amazing family members all of these kind of things it's not to be to live their legacy it's to enhance and optimize their legacy living my own wow i actually had a question here on grief and loss but i think you've well and truly um answered that (laughs) that's um it's quite the story man thank you for sharing yeah thank you for for asking and thank you for allowing me to share really because you know it's the reason why I like to share that is because I know that people take different things from that and different inspiration. And that's why I can open openly say that it's not about what happens in our life. It's how we choose to respond. Hmm. And I can say that by working with Paralympic athletes that have lost their legs, that were training to be able-bodied athletes and they fell onto a train track and the train ran over and chopped both of their legs off and they became fully, completely disabled. Mm. And it changed their life. And then 10, 15 years later, they become a Paralympic champion and life is better because of that. So, but then you see other people that will lose a limb or have an accident and their life becomes debilitating because they choose to let that be the worst thing in their life as opposed to how can I make this the best thing for me moving forward? So it's not what happens in our life. It's how we choose to respond. And that's the small things to the big things. That's the COVID lockdowns to a relationship breakup. It's everything in our life. We get to choose how we respond. It's to those bullies or it's to even the successes. It's how we choose to respond that makes the critical difference. That's some food for thought there, man. Well, um, all right. Just on, um, just on a lighter note, I think, do you have any, um, advice for your 20 year old self there, Robbo? <laughs> 
let me say that at 20, I was still, you know, I was, I was a very naive kid growing up in the country and didn't realize, you know, I still partied a bit, but didn't realize a lot of the drugs going on around me until I was 21 or 22 actually. Right. Um, so as a 20 year old, uh, I, I quit at the AIS. Sorry, I quote unquote took a break to follow a girl seven years older than me to go and work in the mines to earn money to travel. Mm. And that only lasted 10 months. And I realized, no, I'm going back to being a sports therapist and being around sport because that's what I love. So as my 20 year old self, um, I would probably look back at that time and I don't regret anything because it's all led me to where I am now living my amazing life. Have I made mistakes? Absolutely. Have I made some stupid fucking mistakes and broken the law? Yes, I have. And I'm not proud of that. But to look back and to give advice, it doesn't, it's, it's pointless for me to answer that because what I knew at that time with my knowledge and awareness and emotional intelligence and everything, that's what I needed to do. Mm. So if, if my, so I'm 35 now, if my, shit, hang on, I'm 36, not 35. <laughs> I, do, I do the same. If I'm my, like, what year was I born? Uh-huh. If my 35-year-old self turned up to give my 20-year-old self advice, mm. I would have listened and, you know, had a chat and respected that, but I probably wouldn't have taken the advice because the things that I was feeling and doing at that time felt right. Mm. And so to give advice, to, to answer that question, um, from where I am now, I would change if I could take this knowledge, this emotional intelligence, this life experience into that moment, but I never could. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't, I can't answer that question to say to give advice, but I get where you're getting with that. And what I would say is that, yes, I would do things differently, but I have no regrets. Yeah. Yes, I fucked up and made some really poor choices, but that's also now why I know more about and can help people who are doing similar things, grown men, mind you, making similar poor choices and mistakes and can can help guide that because I've seen that side of it and I know that people can change. Mm. Well, Brett Robbo, Robinson, <laughs> thanks so much for your time, mate. We'll wrap it up there. I'll put some links on the podcast page. Um, check out Robbo's podcast, Life of Impact. Is that right? Yeah, Your Life of Impact. Your so, life yeah, thank impact. you, mate. It's been... Like I started the chat, I'll finish the same way. And now it's, you also know that I'm addicted to it, but that's with gratitude. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for the listeners if they've listened all the way through and for you to provide this platform to, to help people, you know, take inspiration and, and learn how they can make positive change in their life. So thank you so much for that, mate. And yeah, Your Life of Impact is the podcast. But what I also say to people is jump onto my website and shoot me an email or on social media and send me a message if you've got any questions because hopefully I've raised a lot of questions or made you think a little bit differently. And if you want resources or anything like that, then then just reach out. I'm more than happy to share things with you. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Robbo. Catch you next time. Thanks again, mate. Greatly appreciated. Chat soon. See you, mate. Bye. All of the music on this podcast is written, recorded, performed, and produced by yours truly. If you like what you hear, you can find most tracks at my SoundCloud at varying degrees of production. Details in the podcast info. If you're a singer and interested in providing some vocals for any of the tracks without vocals, hit me up, and who knows, you may feature on the podcast. Also, if you've got any suggestions or requests for a career which you would like me to cover, 
drop me a line either on the Working Class Instagram or Facebook page. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. Take care and stay motivated. Big thanks goes out to Robbo for sharing his time for today's episode. Classmates, what are you grateful for? Today's track is called Believe in Zero. Thanks going out to Troy Solari again for vocals on this track. Look out for life Look 